You're tuned in to the Comics Pals Podcast. We're a group of comic book journalists and friends who've decided to record a podcast together because we don't talk enough about comics in our daily lives. <laughs> Truer words have never been spoken, Phil. Uh, so, yet again, this week I want to let you guys know how excited we are that you've continued to support what we're doing. Uh, quick reminder that the best ways to support us are to, of course, you know, check out the podcast, uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel, like and uh, comment on this video if you do enjoy it, and uh, keep an eye out for us. We're going to be uh, hitting iTunes really soon and uh, a bunch of other places, so uh, be sure to check for us. And if you want to leave us a question or a comment, you can uh, find us on Twitter at at the comics pals and uh what's our email again you can get us at the comics pals at gmail.com if you want to email in any questions for the show we uh we're also on instagram uh so if you want to send in your uh, picture of your weekly poll uh we'd love to uh post it and share it with uh, our audience uh so we're on instagram at the comics pals oh wait also sorry one more plug because you know why not right you also, if you really want to help us out, really enjoy the show, share it with a friend. Find a like-minded comics pal and get them to join the, the group of little pals. All right, so we should uh, we should probably introduce ourselves to the world out there. Uh, I'm Sean. I'm Kale. I'm Marco. I'm Phil. I'm Pete. So uh, why don't we quickly jump into what we're reading? Uh, I suspect this is going to be a pretty short list. I'll start us off. I'm still behind. Uh, for uh, a few weeks here. I did try to get caught up this week, so I, I read a couple things. Uh, probably the best thing I read was Tokyo Ghost. I'm not sure if any of you guys are familiar with that. But it's Remender, it's, right? Uh, yeah, it's Rick Remender and Sean Murphy. And uh, it's just a phenomenal book. I, I was able to read issues 6 and 7. Uh, 8, 9, and 10 are already out. The series is over, so I'm quite a bit behind, but uh, I recommend it to anybody. If you're into uh, sort of dystopian future sci-fi with a twist, this is definitely a book for you. Uh, Remender is just firing on all cylinders for the last few years now, so if you're a fan of anything he's ever done, Tokyo Ghost will be right up your alley. Cool. I've heard a lot of good things about it. A friend of mine is is really, really into it, so yeah, have to check it out. Worth the pickup, for sure. Cool. For me, it was pretty much a slow week as well. I'm also kind of in a catch-up period. Um, and I've been, like, reading a lot of older things lately, so that's not exactly helping. A catch-up period? Like Heinz? Like Heinz, yes. <laughs> 50, 57 flavors. Um, so I, uh, I spent most of my reading time this week catching up on The Walking Dead, which I haven't read in, I want to say, like, six or eight months, so I'm pretty far behind. Um, but I think I've got, like... Four or five left before I'm caught up, so I'm getting there. You know, I, I, I could talk about it, but it's like if you read The Walking Dead at this point, it's old news. If you don't read The Walking Dead, you don't care. So, Kale, why don't you tell us what you've been reading? Sure. This week I read uh, Titan's Hunt Below Sequaria. I heard that's really good. I probably butchered his name. I, I do apologize. Uh, I was really surprised at how good it was. Um, I think one thing that the uh, that the the rebooted the whole universe was fleshing out uh, the the original Teen Titan, um, having this sort of supplemental material. 
universes really feel a lot more tangible to me. Been reading a lot of teen books lately. Man, I I love teen heroes. Period. Yeah, I don't know. I think uh, I think there's a reason that like so much fiction yeah. focuses yeah. on like high school age kids. You know, it's definitely a, it's in, it's wrought for storytelling for sure. Phil, you want to let us know what you? Uh, I didn't get much time to read this week. It's been a busy week. I'm still working through Animal Man. I'll eventually finish it, but that's pretty much all I've been able to read this week. What about you, Mark? Oh, um, I actually got the chance to read um, "Lost at Sea." Oh, <laughs> all right, by Brantley O'Malley. You guys, you know, you guys brought it up. I'm like, all right, I'll check it out, and and I did, and it was, I didn't quite connect with it. I know Phil and I we were talking a little bit on the chat, and it's like I didn't quite connect with it, but uh, I still thought it was good and enjoyable. I've also been reading, I've been rereading "Powers," which I hadn't, I haven't done in a while. And I just remembered that that was actually one of the first comic series that I got into, like that wasn't a graphic novel. And rereading it, like just rereading the first trade because I have it all by trades, I remembered instances where I didn't know where the actual panels went, like in which direction, because sometimes like they would go across the page versus just stay on one page and go left to right. It would go like across and, and span two pages. And so I, as I'm reading, it's like I, I know where they're going now, but sort of just like looking, like thinking back, and like, oh, I, I remember when I didn't know how to actually read this, or like which panels went where, and how the story would get muddled a little bit because of how, um, how I didn't know how to read it, basically, you know. Um, so, so it was just interesting, like like getting. I, I'm ba- I was basically rereading it for the first time, you know, because yeah. just what I know now versus then it's just it was brand new book man i find that to be so interesting um i actually that reminded me like i think it was last year uh i got my dad to read the watchman it was the first time he had ever like read a graphic novel or like read a comic since he was like a little little kid and um we him and i were talking about it and that was actually something that he pointed out to me that i found really interesting which is like i guess because i've been reading comics my whole life i never really like had that issue of not being able to follow like panels as they go and like not really understanding the way you're supposed to read a comic, like that you're supposed to, you know, take in all the images and read all the text and, you know, maybe look at them twice over to try and like get the whole like scope of what's going on. And um, it was interesting to like hear my dad, who's like a a really voracious reader. He reads like several books a week um, to like, raise that point it's like i'd never even thought about that and it's interesting that you went through the same thing yeah no that's a that's a big deal sometimes yeah sometimes i'll miss the whole point of a book because i i didn't know it was like a double page spread um and there's a big uh there's sort of a i don't know it's not like a big outcry or anything but like i feel like mark wade and a couple other artists have have said that like you know if you if you can't tell which direction you're supposed to read then the comic the comic like doesn't accomplish what it's setting out to do because you should be able to just tell you know yeah and yeah like your eyes guide guide you you. it's a (laughs) sean did we just say the exact same thing yes that's awesome (laughs) (laughs) so would that be that's i mean that's the job of the artist basically not necessarily the writer it's the job of both because yeah. uh, typically when a script is being put together, the writer uh, creates the panels and the panel breakdown um, with that in mind. And then the artist 
uh, takes the vision that the writer has laid out in in the script and puts it on the page. Yeah, that's how it goes most of the time anyway. Like, there are some notable yeah. exceptions to that rule. Like, I know, um, like, Saga, for example, isn't done that way. Uh, Brian just gives the scripts and allows... Um, Oh my god, I can't believe her name just gave me Fiona, right now. Fiona Staples. Fiona Staples, thank you. Uh, allows Fiona to do the layout herself. And, um, you know, just because like they have that kind of relationship. But Sean's right that for the most part, a, a comic book script will include the layout of the panels. So it's kind of on the writer. <laughs> yeah, so we all got through what we're reading this week, which wasn't much. Uh, we promised to get caught up really soon for you guys so that we can talk about more current comic books. Although I think it's interesting to hear us talk about stuff that we're reading, regardless of whether it's current or not. I only read Silver Age comics, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I've, I've said many times I'm a trade waiter. I, I'll make no promises. <laughs> well, all right, fine. I will make the promise then. I promise. I will read every comic book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, So when you guys first picked up books like did you instinctively know and which books were they or which books were they that you didn't quite follow that you had to sort of get a rhythm on oh you mean for like following a panel yeah um i i think i did always just kind of instinctively know and like maybe it is just because like i picked up books that were well crafted as like my early comics but it's interesting to me that like that you guys both expressed that you were able to read a book and not realize that it had double spreads because I've just, like, never had that problem. Because anytime I read that, I, like, recognize the dissonance, and I always flip back. Well, yeah, but the fact that you have to reread it, like, that, that means oh, you yeah, do the same thing. Oh, yeah, that's still a failing yeah. on the creator, for sure. I got you now. I thought you were like, this doesn't make sense. I'm going to keep trucking <laughs> no. along. It's like, wow, this is a really esoteric book. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's move on to the news. There's quite a bit to talk about this week. We're going to start off with some sad news, however. Uh, that being that Double Take has closed down or will be closed by the end of the month. Uh, I suppose uh, that's sad depending on your point of view. To me, anytime people are out of work, it is unfortunate. Um, I think each of us has probably read at least one book from Double Take. None of us were particularly fans of the work. But that being said, these are creators who are busting their butts to try to put out quality work. And even if they didn't succeed, it's so unfortunate to see them uh, out of a job. So Bleeding Cool uh, broke the story. And uh, Take Two Interactive, actually, they're the kind of parent company of Double Take. For those of you who don't know, Take Two Interactive is a video game company that's responsible for such franchises as Bioshock, Civilization, um, XCOM, a lot of big names. Yeah, yeah. So they're, they're a big deal in the video game world. Uh, if you are unfamiliar with Double Take, they launched a, a comic book line of 10 comics uh, about a year ago that uh, was set in the Night of the Living Dead universe, which is uh, kind of interesting. Um, but it just it just didn't quite pan out the way they'd hoped. Uh, the quality wasn't always up to par. Um, and it looked... Yeah, oh, I was going to say, just like there's a little bit of historical context that's kind of interesting there that I had learned recently, um, which is that uh, apparently like the whole way this started was – I forget the ex-Marvel guy who was the head of the – do you know the name? Right? Bill, Bill Hammers. Thank you, Marco. Um, so he left Marvel to come start this imprint at Double Take, and the original purpose of it was to make comics based on their video game properties. 
Um, they ran into some issues when the development teams like refused to allow these other creators to come in and work on the properties essentially. So they kind of like pivoted at the last minute because they had spent all this money setting up this imprint and they didn't have any books to work on. So that was how the whole like Night of the Living Dead thing came about because that's a, a IP that is public license. So it's free to make anything in the Night of the Living Dead universe without having to really? pay. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's another whole another interesting piece of cinema history that I'll save for our movie podcast. Um, cinema power. So long story short, they kind of like made this decision last minute and it, they're like the rationale seemed to be that they were going to cash in on the zombie thing and then pivot into selling books about superheroes and stuff. And like, it's just, it's a shame, but you can like the writing on the wall for this company seems to have been there since the start. As far as I'm concerned, like it, you could tell that it just, the things that they wanted to do and wanted to accomplish that probably would have worked never materialized. And then they were scrambling to fucking yeah, do something. Absolutely. And it, it, it shows in the quality of the books. Like I said, each one of us has read one. I reviewed uh, some, and they just weren't good. They didn't feel cohesive. The art was not ever very, like, good. Like, and not that the, the art couldn't have been good, but it always just felt like it wasn't it felt very. It felt very generic. And I think, like, especially when you have, like, stuff with, like, tinges of zombie all over it, which is, like, a thing that's easy to be very generic and played out, that, like, that didn't really do them any favors either. Well, it seemed like a lot of times they were trying to, at least in the, the one that I read, uh, which at this point I don't even remember which one it was now, but uh, but they um, it seemed like they were trying to innovate something at the same time, but it just wasn't coming across because the you know the like stuff like the lettering wasn't very good and and the the art was so generic that the that what they were doing was uh, like undersold. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some of the concepts were like pretty trippy. I mean, th- there was like a good book here and there. But that was only driven by the writing because, uh, honestly, the art looked almost all the same with the exception, I think, like, Z-Men. Um, but, uh, yeah, Kayla was, like, overall, it wasn't anything special. And, actually, I remember reading within the actual pages that they wanted the the books to sort of be a conversation between, like, creators. And so they just sort of, they they had a conversation and they would put that in the text of the actual like of the actual comic so sometimes it wouldn't necessarily relate to what was going on in the story and there was a big disconnect between the environment and what was being said it's interesting that you bring up uh z-men because that that book was actually optioned for a uh, movie adaptation with lionsgate the wonder woman trailer was released Uh, i guess this would be the second trailer now uh but it really kind of opened the floodgates as far as showcasing some of the action in the film um sort of giving us more of an idea of what the plot's going to be although we still don't have much of an idea of who the villain's going to be or anything like that Um, good so we're just gonna yeah yeah i'm not i'm not bothered by it at all it's uh it's kind of refreshing that their second trailer in and we don't know who the main villain's going to be or really kind of what wonder woman's role in world war one is uh i will say that when they first announced this movie and announced that it was going to take place during world war one i had a lot of reservations about that uh logical uh, reservations but also just i want to see wonder woman in the modern world um and i don't know that i necessarily cared for an origin of the character when we already saw her 
in the sort of main continuity of the DCU in Batman versus Superman. Uh, that being said, though, I can understand why they chose to do this because it looks so cool. I, I mean, it looks like she belongs in that world, you know, in that 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 time frame. So uh, the action looks top notch. I'm so excited to see Gal Gadot reprise the role because I do think that she has done a great job as Wonder Woman so far. Um, it looks like it's going to be funny. It looks like it's you know, Chris, uh, what's his name, Chris, uh, Chris Pine. Yeah, Chris, Chris handsome Pine. guy. <laughs> Him being in the movie throws me off a little bit. Don't know why. I think back to that photo that they showed in Batman versus Superman, where it's clear it's it's Chris Pine, uh, in you know in the early 1900s, and it just freaks me out. But at any rate, I'm really excited for this film. Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's going to be good. Um, I I've heard tale that uh, it it may it may open like a, a new uh sort of feel for the for the for the DCU um and and a, or or the cinema uh universe anyway um and i and i i hope that's true um jeff johns has said it it, it feels very uh superman 1 like like the the very first uh, christopher reeve superman um and 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 i hope that's true i hope it inspires you know legions of female-led movies and books and name you know other mediums that's bold as shit to say oh it's gonna be like george reeves or christopher reeves superman uh, yeah i'm very hesitant but i'm excited like i th- I, I, I have mean, to say like i went from zero to ten on this thing from that trailer you know like that trailer is really cool but like so was man of steel's trailer so i'm trying to reserve that excitement because like i want this movie to be good but i'm really trying to temper my expectations because like they've done nothing since the dark knight to show me that they have like any ability to put together a solid movie you know and they they, they, they shuffled the chairs so i mean maybe it'll be good i hope so i really hope jeff johns being involved ends up being like you know um uh, a deciding factor in pushing things in a good direction moving forward um, I'm really, really happy to see that Zack Snyder isn't fucking directing this movie. I think those... He's directing Justice League. Well, Justice League's probably gonna suck. Like, I'm being honest. Like, Zack Snyder is not a good director. He's not a good filmmaker. Like, he's fine as a cinematographer. Like, he's good at visuals, creating visuals. But, like, his movies are bad. They are bad. And, like, even if Wonder Woman is good, then we go back to Justice League. It's like, that's gonna be a huge disappointment. Like, if anything, I think Wonder Woman might be the one outlier out of this entire, like, set of films that's, like, actually good if if we're, you know, if this trailer is any indication of its quality. And honestly, I hope that's true. I hope that stands. Like, honestly, she's the character out of any of them that, like, stands the most to gain, you know? Because, like, Superman and Batman are already household names. They will always be household names. And, like, Wonder Woman has seriously waned, you know? And if this movie could make her relevant again, that would be really cool. And that that kind of speaks on something that I was really looking to talk about, which is, you know, why is that? I mean, when you look at DC right now, the big three has shifted from Wonder Woman being involved and Batman and Superman to Batman, Superman, and Harley Quinn. Um, That's true from a sales perspective. Uh, When it comes to the toys and all the sort of, you know, all the the things that they sell. uh, Costumes costumes yeah um 
Harley Quinn always tops the sales charts for them. Her comic book sells more than Wonder Woman. She's got that mind share. Uh, yeah, yeah. She's very much in the zeitgeist right now. People are excited about her character, and they have been for years. Uh, I can't remember where I read this, but I read an article that was talking about the fact that Harley Quinn has been selling like hotcakes for a long time. Um, yeah, since the 90s. You know, this isn't a, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, this isn't a recent thing. It's just now that DC is kind of saying to themselves, okay, let's run with this. Um, I suspect part of that is because they really wanted Wonder Woman to take that role. But for reasons that I'd love to talk about right now, that just hasn't happened. I think it's kind of a perfect storm for Wonder Woman. I think she has a lot of the trappings of a lot of Silver Age comic book characters, which is unfortunately like most of DC's main roster are characters from that era. Um, And I think, like, if you're a comic book fan, if you're someone who enjoys the medium, those things can come off as charming and, like, nostalgic, and you can recognize, like, the value in them. But I think to, like, mainstream audiences, they're a lot less palatable. I think Batman has succeeded because he's been able to adapt with the times and kind of um, come into that... 80s 90s vision of comics that has informed the way that comics are still written to this day of being like darker and grittier and i don't think that characters like superman or wonder woman um adapt to that quite as well and i think superman stayed relevant because superman is superman and superman is like an american icon and even if people stop reading superman comics he'll always be that i don't know what any of this means Pete. it just sounds like a bunch of buzzwords what are you talking about <laughs> Spider-Man's a Silver Age character that's completely relevant and, you know, applicable today. I, I don't think just because these characters are from the Silver Age that they have any less meaning to pop culture today. I just think comic books, is, a lot of comic book characters in general are, are struggled to transition in general. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I do think it's harder, though, when it's like Spider-Man is a Silver Age character, but like... He was a revolutionary Silver Age character. Silver Age character. It made sense for him to be able to adapt with the times because, like, the core of him is something simple. Like, Wonder Woman has like all this crazy mythology and stuff that you have to accept, and like bringing that into the modern kind of look we have at most superheroes, at least on the big screen, is more of a leap than someone like Batman. I mean, I mean, I think I think relative to the fifties and sixties, a lot of characters were really, really popular. Like. Flash comics sold incredibly well, obviously, in the 50s. Um, I don't think the origin or the era that the character was conceived in has any bearing on the success of the character today, or any character, really. Oh, I totally disagree. I agree with that. So, Phil, what would you attribute the lack of uh, excitement surrounding the Wonder Woman character over the years to? I think when you have people who don't care about uh, comic books... So for decades, women didn't really take an interest in comics collectively. And this was something that really started to change the last 10 years or so. Um, so when we have this character who's the ultimate embodiment of, like, she's the Superman of women. You know I mean? She's Superwoman, basically. Um, when you have a character like that, but you have a, you know, 50% of the country doesn't read comic books... How is she supposed to be popular? But then why do you think she was popular during her inception and in those early days? Like, do you really think that there was so many more women reading comic books then? More people read comic books back then. Comic books in general were more, I mean, they were more available. They were more 
popular. Uh, and it wasn't just superhero comic books. Comic books in general just sold more. Westerns and, and horror sure, books right. and stuff. And when Wonder Woman was adapted into something other than comic books, like a TV show with Linda Carter, she was all of a sudden in the, in the public zeitgeist. So then why do you think that hasn't continued to translate, though? Because she hasn't been part of the public zeitgeist for 30 years, really. I I think I disagree. Uh, we've, seen, we've had her in the Justice League. We've had her in Justice League Unlimited. Um, and she, yeah, and those shows had niche markets not just that but she's also overshadowed by other characters you know she like batman had his own tv show his own movies his own series um two of them uh, so, <laughs> a lot yeah, more than and two so did um so did and so you know and so does superman he has his own movies his own tv shows. so he's he's being they are being pushed far more into the public's eye versus wonder woman they're supposed to be the the trinity but only two of them are really get, getting that. <clears throat> there, only two of them are really getting that push. Um, and and you said that, like to to Phil's point, that she was popular when she was in, in first created, and then when Linda Carter took, uh, made the was Wonder Woman in the show, she was portraying the character. She was in the public's eye. But since then, um, not to say that they've gotten so low that they're you know, the books don't sell. They do, but. In terms of popularity, it's at least for me because they aren't. She isn't as prominent in just in pop culture as much. Yeah, I mean, to Marco's point, I mean, if you have a character that was, I mean, the Flash, he's another example, or Green Lantern. Um, these are characters that were very popular in their inception in comics because more people read comics in the forties and fifties than. You know, they did in the 70s and 80s and 90s. I mean, people read comics, but back then, that was the golden and silver age of comics for a reason. And a lot of that has to do with the sales numbers. Um, so, all three of those characters got less popular over time because there was just no market for them. And Marvel, as a, as a, as a company, never had, like, the big seven, like, DC did, and while they definitely have Avengers characters, it really wasn't until the cinematic universe took off that Iron Man became a household name. And oh yeah, yeah, he was a C lister up until then, and that's the case for most of the Avengers. Um, people were like loosely familiar with Captain America, um, and when you talk about the larger public, there needs to be something that there really needs to be an adaptation for them to be household names, and. I mean that this movie could be an opportunity for Wonder Woman, and it might be too late because at this point there's definitely a saturation in superhero movies, and so while there's definitely the distinction of being the first female lead of a superhero movie, um, she has some things working against her here. I think because people like don't care about DC movies really because there's been a clear, you know, there's been a clear separation quality yeah quality and audience interest is i mean people trust the marvel brand people go see ant-man and doctor strange even though they don't know anything about the character because it's a marvel movie i think that that's a tough sell what you're saying simply because Su suicide squad and batman and batman versus superman did relatively well i mean suicide squad was a success batman superman wasn't considered a success by warner brothers financially because of how much they put into it but it definitely sold like gangbusters people went to see it so i i don't think i don't think that I, there's we talk about this sort of superhero cinematic universe bubble that's going to burst and i don't think we're near the burst 
Um, but that's that's a side conversation from this sort of mystery of why Wonder Woman's not as successful because she had a show, right? She, the the Linda Carter show was popular. forty years ago. Yeah, but it was yeah, yeah. it's like, right. It's old. You know, it's like well, all right, all right, guys, but let let me, let me get through it, right? Yeah. Um, she had a show. Lots of people, uh, young girls, grew up watching her show. Um, and it's what what puzzles me is that DC didn't ride that wave into the eighties and nineties with Wonder Woman by giving her her own show, by kind of putting her out there as sort of on the level with Batman, Superman. Why didn't they do that? I I, I do think to a degree it comes down to marketing. Um, I think, you know, after World War II or whatever, comics became a boys club and nobody was interested in Wonder Woman. But I, I think the problem now sort of, and, and I think we there's a good chance we could see this uh, happen after the movie. There aren't really any essential Wonder Woman stories. That's what I was just about to say. Like, I don't, there's no like 80s, like... This was a retelling of this this character for the modern era, like we have with Batman and Superman. Yeah, that's not true. Those those stories exist. It's just it comes down to them not being pushed, because Gail Simone has written some incredible Wonder Woman stories. Uh, Grant Morrison literally just remade. Her. Yeah, but those are those are modern authors. Like we haven't seen a Frank Miller Wonder Woman. Uh, you know, we haven't seen an Alan Moore Wonder Woman. We don't have like we don't have uh, a Dark Knight Returns for Wonder Woman. We don't have a Watchmen for Wonder Woman. The Death of Wonder Woman. We don't have Wonder Woman Nightfall. We don't have Crisis of Infinite Wonder Woman. Yeah, like, but you guys, but I mean, they're not actually making. They're not basing them off those things. Like like the new movies, they have nothing to do with the original stories. Like Marvel is taking that, but DC isn't. DC isn't taking. I think what they're saying, Marco, is like. With someone like let's come, we talked about in last week's episode. But with someone like Batman, if there's books that are part of the public zeitgeist, like Dark Knight right. Returns and Year One or what have you, whereas whereas Wonder Woman, the public is not familiar with her books, which goes to Kale's point, which is where he talks about the marketing aspect. Wonder Woman books aren't marketed to the public. Let's let's take that as 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 true because I think. I think you guys are right in the sense that there, those definitive runs don't exist in the way they do for Batman. So that's fine. Not to say that there aren't good Wonder Woman stories, just there aren't any that have that like cultural consciousness. Yeah. yeah. Right. Now, if you if you juxtapose Wonder Woman with Harley Quinn, I would argue that there are, there are even less relevant stories that are Harley Quinn based. On top of that, prior to Suicide Squad, there wasn't like a great reason why any individual would know of Harley Quinn because she wasn't she wasn't out yeah, there. I, the, the cartoon, though, man. Yeah. That's the thing. She blew up. The people that like Harley Quinn probably never watched the cartoon. I don't think that's the audience. No, I disagree. Whole, wholly disagree with that. No, I think I agree with Phil. Yeah, I, I, I get that, Phil. If Harley Quinn is, you know, arguably the most popular character in comics or second most popular or, like, whatever up there, um... There's a niche of people who watch Batman animated series, and that's not the demographic of people... Who are dressing up like Harley Quinn because they don't give a rat's ass about Batman animated series. They like the aesthetic of the character. They like the idea of it. They like the energy. They like yeah, the fun and bubbly. But I think it's naive to think that they didn't grow up watching that show if they were like in this age. Girls didn't watch that and show also, growing up, really. That, I think and that's also, sexist. where do you think that came from? Like, I, I, I don't think collectively. Most 
most people I know that like Harley Quinn had no interest in watching that show growing up because it was a boy show. I mean, like, that's, like, that's anecdotal evidence, though. That's all I'm saying. That's true. I give you that. But, like, I don't think the interest in the character is derivative of com- from comic books. I think it's... I think it's broader than that. I agree, and I think it's I think it's from the cartoon that she originated in. That was like a huge thing when we were that. kids. Well, maybe in I, I, I think of it as in two realms because I don't think that the mass audience that watches movies are necessarily comic readers. There's a less amount of comic readers than there are movie totally. readers, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say I would say that in the realm of comics, those people who grew up on the TV show are what effectively led to Harley Quinn being a popular character within the realm of comics. But within the recent rise of the movies and having Harley Quinn attached to the whole maniacal Joker thing, which we saw with um, Heath Ledger, that was, that was very influential in creating that whole, you know, crazy idea. And then that being translated to Harley, like just, just with her being related to Joker and then with the new movie coming out, that sort of, made it a perfect wave of for her to just ride that to popularity. I would agree with that. Harley Quinn Harley Quinn was the most popular costume yeah. in this all. Yeah, because Suicide Squad just came out. And it was right, last that, year that's too. Why. It was also the most popular costume for women yeah, last year. Yeah, because Suicide Squad was coming out. I don't think the hype had to do with that. I think it was part of it. Well, when when was the last time that Wonder Woman's costume was the most popular costume? Probably never. Right. I've never seen... And also, when when did Harley Quinn have her own show, right? When Justice League, Wonder Woman was one of the main characters. Harley Quinn appeared in probably a handful of episodes of Batman Superman. So I, I'm struggling to understand why she's so much more popular. Well, I do think, though, like, in Batman the Animated Series, though, which was, like, by far, like, Batman the Animated Series and the new adventures of Batman, like, were by far the most successful cartoons from that that series of animation. Like, those were on primetime television at their height. Like, they were on, on Sunday nights, adults watched that show. So, or, like, at least teenagers, young, like, every that show was very culturally important. And the main characters of that show were Batman, the Joker, and his sidekick, Harley Quinn. Let me put it this way, Pete. That show came out in 1992, and children that watch that show are now in their late 20s, early 30s. Most people dressing up like Harley Quinn are kids and teenagers. So where's the audience to watch that show? Well, again, that all comes from the movie. Like, if you're only talking about costumes, like that has nothing to do with people that are actually fans of Harley Quinn or people that read comic books. Or I think that's a totally different conversation. Of course, but that's what that's how fans like. There are true fans, and then there are people who like. It on an aesthetic or cosmetic or just superficial level. Most of Batman fans have only maybe seen the the Nolan trilogy, but he's got the largest demographic of fans because that's what it comes down to. Most people don't read comics and most people don't even watch the TV shows. And for someone like Harley Quinn, who's as popular as she is, maybe 20% of the people that read those comics, this is a completely arbitrary number, are actually fans of the character. But they, they like the aesthetic. They like the look. They like the backstory. I think that we're having two different conversations because we're trying to connect the movies to the comics. And there's no way to actually do that in terms of like Harley Quinn because they're two different characters. Now, the comics are, 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 are reflecting what Harley Quinn looks like in the movies, right? Now she has like like the the, the two the two tails. She has the, the different colored things. She has like the hammer. Back then, she was, you know... She looked like a court jester, right? So 
we're if, if we're going to talk about it i think we should talk about it in those two separate realms not trying to mash them together because we we can't connect them they're they're different i do also want to just raise another example that i don't we forgot to mention because marco just reminded me the actual this current uh look for harley quinn um i think one of the first places it was like popularized in pop in popular culture outside of the comics was actually the uh arkham series of video games where she was also a main yeah. character um and i think that probably put her back in the public consciousness because that series started in 2009 oh that's right yeah so it's yeah. like that's six years of of one of the biggest video games every three years having her as one of the main villains so that also puts her in the public eye quite a why, bit. why why harley over every other uh female character in comics too why is she because she's re- she's related to batman she's related to the joker who are characters that have a cult of personality and it's like it's easy to fit her into that because it's just like Batman's rogues gallery. Why are Batman's villains so well known? A because they're great, but B because they're fucking they fight they fight Batman. So why why more popular than Catwoman? That's a good question. I don't know. I mean there I mean there's a point in time where Catwoman's costume was the most popular. Like Catwoman was in Batman Returns and has been the best Catwoman uh adaptation period if you ask me let's let's uh let's orient this conversation back around wonder woman before we close out this segment because uh i don't know if you guys remember but dc kind of tried to in the new 52 um reinvigorate the wonder woman character uh they gave her a costume well even before brian they they gave her the new costume right uh they they kind of they kind of tried to um, bring her out for a modern audience, and that was absolutely lambasted. Nobody cared about that at all, uh, to the to the point where they relatively quickly had to switch her back to her uh, typical you mean the, costume. You mean the costume was lambasted, not the the uh, the attempt to bring her back into the public consciousness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I also think some of Wonder Woman's issue sort of uh like i said it it does have to do with the marketing but i think some of it also has to do with what we talked about last week in that they're they're you know the the sort of latent like sexism and 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 sexualization of uh women characters i think uh, i think part of that and we're only kind of starting to see it turn now i think part of it was it wasn't a feminist book i guess is the the best way i know how to say that like you know like like we were saying you know her her like origins like as as a as an ip are very rooted in sexuality which has sort of carried through but only through the you know the people who are working on her as opposed to the character sexuality. But if that see if that's if that plays a negative role in her origin or in her popularity, then you can make the same you can why is why is Catwoman more popular? Why is Harley Quinn more popular? Harley Quinn's sexuality is all over the place. She is highly sexual. I think it's because like A, like they're villains, or they're or at the very least Catwoman's an antihero. So I think like having a like quote unquote, you know, it's like femme fatale or whatever is like palatable to us. And I think like Wonder Woman, like we've we've danced around this a lot. She's supposed to be a feminist superhero. She's supposed to be representative of feminism. And I don't think a lot of women see her that way. 
I think like her original costume is like a little too revealing. And I think we, you know, we had Jess on the show last week and she said that that was a problem that she had relating to superheroes as young girls because she didn't like the way that they dressed and they were too sexual, sexual and their sexuality was too upfront. So I think that's a problem for her because I don't think she necessarily visually represents a good, a good idea of feminism. And, uh, and I think that their answer to that was an overcorrection, you know, like they, they tried to put her in pants and a jacket and, and make her look very like, and this might come off as sexist, but I think they tried to make her look more masculine and as opposed to trying to make her look non-sexualized, like she can be uh, a pillar of femininity or whatever, like we've talked about and not be a pinup girl. And I don't think we've ever seen that interpretation of the character. I think we have. We, we absolutely have. Uh, if you look at if you like if you even read her right now, that's the case. But if you read Gail Simone's run, if you read Brian Azzarello's run, if you read the way she was portrayed in Identity Crisis, all throughout the years, Wonder Woman has not been portrayed as remotely a sexual character in many instances. And when she is portrayed as a sexual character uh, that I've seen anyway, it's done in a very um, I don't want to say careful way, but in a tasteful way. Um, the, you know, the same way it might be done with Batman. It's handled well for the medium that it's in. And I think we have this misunderstanding of her because she's a woman, she can't be sexual. And I think that that's way wrong. I think that that's extremely wrong. I think it's also that she is a woman in power and that may not always applied well with people who don't like to, to see that. Like we, you guys were talking about sexism last last episode and that's always something that that's rampant in in a lot of communities and in the comics communities sometimes it's it gets pretty bad and so seeing her as being a woman of power uh that might not be something that pushes the the character from a marketing perspective you know you don't want you don't want to push that idea but um catwoman and harley quinn they're more submissive they're more wild and they fulfill a male fantasy. Yeah, also to an extent, subconsciously even, you know? And Sean, to respond, again, I wasn't saying that I don't think Wonder Woman's ever been uh, written well. It's more that I don't think the public sees her that way. Or at least I don't think like girls and women who might want to read her books have that perception of her, whether or not that's true. I think that's fair to say, Pete, totally fair. What I will say, though, as my last point is... If that's the case, then why are women buying Harley Quinn? I don't know. I don't I don't understand that. And I think that at that point we reach the apex of this conversation because we can't answer that question because we're men. I kind of wonder if Warner Woman has a similar public perception that Superman has and that people think she's boring. I think yeah, I think I think Wonder Woman, Superman, and Captain America all sort of fall in that same uh in that same category where they're supposed to be these stoic representational characters. Um, and they, uh, they're just not, I mean, unfortunately often that means they're just not that interesting until you put an adaptation on, on the screen. Like I've, I've always loved Captain America, but I never felt Captain America until Chris Evans was on the, on the screen. Wait, Wonder Woman's not like... I mean, you guys have read more of the character. I Honestly, the only thing I've read is Brian Azzarello's run. And that, to me, like, my first stab at um, at Wonder Woman, you know, that was incredible. She's, like, she's strong. She's 
um she's smart she's she's just awesome in that book so to think that some people think that she's boring kind of just blows my mind most people who think superman captain america or wonder woman are boring haven't read a book of any of those characters well they don't read comic books and yeah. also that's a recent book right yeah of course yeah like you know the public perception even even among older comics readers is you know yeah these characters are boring they've always been boring why would i pick up uh why would i pick uh why would i pick up a, a wonder woman book it's boring it always has been it always will be that's what i was trying to get at originally when i was talking about the whole i think that a lot of the dc canon like a lot of their characters have that problem i think because of when they were conceptualized they have a more that like that wholesome kind of like golden age bright you know, like you said, representative kind of character. And I don't, I think it is hard to transition those characters up and up and up, you know, you do need to find new interpretations for them to your point, Gail. I think that that's a, that's a really interesting conversation that I would love to have uh, at another point, but I think we've had a solid conversation about Wonder Woman and I would love to move on because we are all excited to talk about Dr. Strange. Oh, hell yeah. This is a movie that uh, three of us got to see. So Pete, Phil and I, we saw the film. Uh, Kale and Marco, unfortunately, haven't had the opportunity to see it yet. But that's not going to stop us from having a talk about it. What we're going to do is we're going to have a spoiler-free conversation here now where we just give our impressions. And Kale and Marco, you guys can ask us questions. And then after we're done with that talk, we're going to have a sort of addendum conversation that's going to be spoiler-filled that you guys who have... Uh, already seen the film can listen to and kind of get our feelings on the whole movie me and kale we can walk out of that one actually yeah, you guys can if if it's okay i might go ahead and bow out uh because i i don't want to go in with anything um so um i'm gonna i'm gonna mute you guys i'll stay recording but uh yeah shoot shoot me a text yeah and for those of you who um who haven't seen the movie you know you guys can click off uh, we'll put a timestamp in the YouTube video that you can click past this spoiler section and get to the end of the episode and get to the uh, you know the whole end end segment if you're interested. Otherwise, come back and listen when you've seen the movie, please. Have fun, guys. All right, so my spoiler-free thoughts. Uh, I loved the movie. I thought it was really good. It greatly exceeded my expectations, um, which were already fairly high because I had heard some really good preliminary buzz uh, from Sean included. Um, I think it's probably the best superhero origin story that's ever been done on the big screen um just in general because i think it was paced really well it has a really solid three-act structure um the characters are likable benedict cumberpatch does a good job with with the character i think he kind of brings something new to the table while also being very true to stephen strange uh i think the supporting cast is as good as he is for the most part um the villain is interesting i won't spoil who it is but um, yeah, overall, it's it's visually really impressive. It's it's a really great movie, and I love a lot of the Marvel movies. I don't usually think they're actually good films, though. They're great popcorn movies. They're great to see, but um, this is actually legitimately a good film. So uh, if you haven't seen it, go see it. Um, if you have seen it, I can't wait to talk more about it in a few minutes. As far as Marvel movies goes, I think this is my favorite, which is it's a lot of them. There's a lot of Marvel movies at this point. Thirteen. And, Thirteen, um, I counted. Jeez. I really liked it. And while there's definitely shortcomings with it that I think come from the Marvel formula that just bugged the crap out of me, um, the movie was really enjoyable. Uh, I really 
really liked I really liked Benedict Cumberbatch in the movie. Um, I really liked the visuals. I really liked the way the climax happened. Uh, I thought it was very innovative and unique. It wasn't a schlock fest. Um, I really liked uh, Tilda Swinton. I thought she was really good. In fact, I think she kind of stole the show. I'm interested to hear more about that. Yeah, I'm trying to say this all without like going into too much detail right now. Don't um, ruin it for me, Phil. <laughs> so just like, yeah, just final thoughts so we can we'll talk more about the specifics yeah, 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 yeah. of the spoiler stuff. But I thought it was great. I uh, I generally like the lesser known IP Marvel movies like Guardians of the Galaxy and Ant Man. Those are kind of the higher ranking ones for me. Uh, I thought it was refreshing. And for someone that's kind of superhero fatigued on on superhero movies, uh, this was refreshing for me. I went in having seen fifteen minutes of the movie already and being buzzed off that, but I honestly thought that the movie would be good, enjoyable, but not necessarily great. Uh, the fifteen minutes that I saw didn't really give me a sense of the the overall narrative and where they were taking it. And I think one of the things that surprised me the most was how much heart this movie has. Um, the 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 storyline of Stephen Strange and his journey is something that I really connected with in a way that I haven't connected to a hero's journey since Batman Begins. Uh, his his origin, his um, the 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 sort of journey they take him on is really compelling. Marvel hasn't gotten it right in this way yet. I thought it was a lot like Iron Man in a sense, but it goes. It goes. It takes what they did right with Iron Man and takes it to another level. I thought, um, without the kind of generic villain that Iron Monger was, right? Um, I, I thought this movie had surprises. There were things that I saw in this film that I did not expect at all. Uh, it was funny. I, I didn't think it was going to be as funny as it was. Um, the acting was top notch. I agree with Phil and that Tilda Swinton did an amazing job. Um, and I really am now a huge fan of this character on screen in a way that I didn't expect to be. So, top-notch movie, I thought. So, one of the things that I was impressed by, and I gather that you guys may feel differently than I did, but uh, I really liked how there were a lot of sort of different-looking people in the film, if you will, uh, than we're used to. Just the locale of Doctor Strange made it so that, you know, there were a lot of, I mean, some of the movie takes place in other parts of the world, so you get that. Um, Baron Mordo was cast as a black man instead of um, being an Asian person in the comic. Um, Tilda Swinton sort of brings, like, an unknown uh, gender identity, uh, race identity. She just kind of looks flat, which I really enjoyed. Um Wong, obviously, being an Asian man, one of the better characters in the film, I thought. Uh, so it was nice to see a Marvel movie that brings you different looking people, different flavors, different races. I really appreciated that. And it's a it's a, a big difference from Iron Man 1 or Captain America 1 or Thor 1. Well, Thor 1 probably did better than a lot of these other movies. But um, I just really I guess I, I really appreciated that element of the film. Um. I, I agree with you for the most part. I also did want to say, um, you just brought him up. I looked up the actor's name, but I did want to give specific shout-outs to Benedict Wong, who played Wong in the film. Um, I really thought he stole the show in a lot of ways for me because he was such a small part of the movie, but I every time he was on screen, I was just so happy he was there. 
I thought I thought him and Benedict had great uh, great chemistry. Um, but yeah, I so I'm inclined to agree with you. I I think I said before we started recording, or it might have been earlier in the episode. Um, I think they did the best that they could given the controversy around the film. Like I know that they were unwilling to uh, kind of go the route of the comics. A, because I do think like there's a way that that could come off as kind of like unsavory, but more so because of the issues of not being able to show um, uh, the movie in China. If there's a, a large po- population of, um, oh my God, I can't think of the name of the group. Um, where are the monks from in the in the book? Tibet. Tibet. Thank you. Um, yeah. So I understand that, like, given the cultural sensitivity of like Tibetan and Chinese relations, that they were not. Uh, wait, 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 wait. Weren't the monks in this movie from Nepal? Yeah, but that's the thing. In the in the book, they're not. Oh, 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 oh! oh I see what you're saying now. Um, so I, I understand their desire to kind of sidestep that whole controversy, and I can respect that to some degree. Um, and I do think that them kind of making it seem as though this the group of sorcerers is this like multi multicultural uh, worldwide organization that has people from all all races and countries and creeds and everything, um, I think was a pretty effective way to try to handle that. Um, but that being said, it is still a movie that focuses pretty heavily on what are Asian themes and has a, a disappointing lack of Central Asian characters, I think, given that. But I I did love Wong. I think I think with this film, Marvel was kind of backed into a corner in the sense that any decision that they made could have been perceived as racist. Um, and I, it, it, this is going to sound weird to say, but I in that sense, I do feel for Marvel because I'm sure that they do want. Why wouldn't they want to have a movie that includes all sorts of people, especially when? You know, Mordo and uh, the Ancient One are Asian in the books. There's no reason not to have them be Asian. But you have the situation that they were in with the Mandarin, where if they had cast the Mandarin the way he is in the comics, a lot of people would have felt that that was racist. Oh, yeah. I mean, definitely. (laughs) And so I really don't know what the answer would have been with this film, uh, how to appease everyone. I don't think you really can. And I think Marvel chose to just try to make the best movie they could and be as respectful as they could within the confines of sort of not having too much wiggle room um, to get away from the criticism. I I would agree with that. I I do think that, like, this is kind of the best that they could do given the circumstances. And I think it worked. I, I don't think it felt inappropriate. It didn't make me uncomfortable. So, Phil, do you have any thoughts on that before we uh, jump into the spoiler section? It's a tough subject, okay? Like, um, you definitely are straddling a, like, high beam with this kind of thing. Um, I was apprehensive about Tilda Swin being um, cast as the Ancient One at first, you know? Uh, I think her, her performance absolutely won me over, though. Um, and it goes back to that conversation I think we had in the first episode about should they make Doctor Strange an Asian character, and at what point is something like that um being making someone a stereotype? It basically comes down to stereotype versus appropriation. That's like the conversation that is being straddled, and uh, I think because the movie worked and because I enjoyed it, I think all that is kind of secondary because I think it worked out. We're going to jump into the spoilerific portion of the podcast. If you do want to skip out on this conversation, as Pete said, there will be an annotation in the uh, video that you can click on, which will take you to the end where we will wrap up. Um, 
but if you're sticking around, I hope you enjoy our our talk about this movie because we all have some deep thoughts to uh, express about it. So here we go. All right. I've decided to leave. You're gonna take off, Marco. Yeah, yeah. I'm. I, I might as well. But how are you gonna edit this, buddy? Oh. Yeah, you're gonna get spilled <laughs> one way or the other. <laughs> I didn't even think of that. I That's why we asked that. you in the beginning. <laughs> well, you know what? I can I can edit it, but like I'll skip over stuff. You guys, I just I made the joke to these guys before. We'll just have to do such a good job that you don't have to edit it. Yeah, basically. All right, let's do that. All right, let's do it. Put on your A game, boys. All right, so we are jumping into the spoiler filled portion of the podcast. Last chance to dip out. Yes. <laughs> Okay, so for me, the biggest thing that sold this movie for me is like, as someone who does read comics, or at least is generally familiar with the characters that were like, Guardians of the Galaxy is the only Marvel movie that they've made where I didn't know the characters beforehand, right? So going into Doctor Strange, I already know his origin very well. I, I'm a fan of Doctor Strange. I watched the uh, ultimate Marvel animated movie that they did a couple years ago, which is the exact same origin. And um, going into this, I liked how they gave us enough of his origin story to like really paint a picture of what he's like before the accident and how that like really impacts his growth as a character. So that like by the end of the movie where he faces off against Dormammu, it really feels earned for me in a way that I don't think a lot of other superhero movies manage. Um, and I think beyond that, uh, the other big thing that really won it for me was looking at the um the the conflict with Dormammu at the end of the movie I remember leading up to that moment um I was so into this movie and we get to this last scene and I was really nervous because it seemed as though it was going to be the same kind of classic Marvel conclusion where we need to stop a big thing from touching the ground and <laughs> I'm so so fucking sick of that like I'm not fatigued of superhero movies but I'm fatigued of the way that their plots advance and, like, that's the big thing for me. Like, Dormammu being this big force over sitting over the city, I was so nervous about how that was going to come to a conclusion. But the fact that instead of it being this generic fight, as soon as the, what you think is going to be the big generic fight happens, Doctor Strange is like, peace, and goes and just completely outsmarts Dormammu. And, like, he defeats him in a way that shows, that doesn't make Dormammu look weak and doesn't make Doctor Strange look powerful. It makes him look smart. You know, he he defeats Dormammu, who's a being who doesn't have a concept of time by imposing time on him. And it's like that is how like a genius like level surgeon like Doctor Strange would try to solve a problem like that, not with brute force, but with his intellect. And I love that, you know, it was like such a refreshing way to conclude uh, a final battle with a villain, especially one as imposing as Dormammu. It's, it's almost like he humanized him. Like, yeah. You he know, brought him down to the they, human they, level, and that's how he defeated him. Yeah, I really, really loved it. Um, I, I loved – one of the things that I thought watching the film was I was loving everything that, that, that they did. And then when they get to the battle where they're kind of like on the side of the building or whatever, um, I thought that was the end. I thought that was the last fight. And so I was like, oh, really? Come on. This is how we're going to end the film? And then when it goes on and um, the Ancient One gets you know killed and everything, I was like, oh, okay, there's more movie here. And that's when I got excited because for me, that was the unknown. That was, okay, I don't know anything that's coming next. 
I don't know where they're going to take this, so now I'm just going to strap in again. Um, and then you get to the end where you've got Dormammu knocking on the door, which was something that I totally didn't expect. Me neither, I man. I did not think we were going to see Dormammu in this movie. Not at all. I thought we would hear him teased at the end. So when they were bringing him up earlier in the movie, I was like, wait, what are we in for right now? Uh, I thought that was just fan service. Like, I thought we were just getting a name drop. Exactly, exactly. And then and then I was slightly disappointed with his look just because that's not the traditional Dormammu look. But the way they used him was so smart. Because again, like you were saying, Pete, this is an this is an ending to a Marvel film that's so different than what we get typically. Um instead of it just being this world ending battle, it's like, okay, here's Doctor Strange, a guy who just a few months ago was a surgeon who never thought he would see anything like this in his life, facing down a demigod, right? And how was he going to deal with this? And they didn't, they didn't, to your point, make him seem overpowered. They just used his intellect, his raw smarts. And I love that because we don't see that in Marvel movies. They always brute force down the enemy or almost always. Um, and it doesn't undermine Dormammu. Like, Dorm- like, we still see Dormammu as a threat, you know? Like, and when he comes back, we're going to be like, oh, fuck. That was the guy that literally almost eliminated the universe. Exactly. Uh, Phil, you want to get a word in there? From a, from the outside perspective, the movie definitely follows a, a stereotypical formula of the three-act structure in the way that there's the origin story, uh, the conflict, and then the big fight at the end. And the thing that is great about this movie is while it does take that structure and borrows from it, it does it in such a unique, satisfying way that it doesn't matter. So, like, the destination is relevant because the journey was so satisfying. And um, Sean's point, I actually really like the look of tomorrow. As soon as he goes into the dark dimension, the entire aesthetic and look of it, I was like, oh, shit, yeah. This is fucking satisfying as hell. Dude, it was like, it um, was like in this, uh, the whole thing, like, reeked of absurdist paintings, which was so cool. But the way that, like, the color palette changed when they got to the dark zone, it looked like it was, like, Lisa Frank, like, stickers threw up on a painting. Like... <laughs> It was, it was it was beautiful. It was beautiful. And yeah, no, the entire aesthetic was great. When when <clears throat> the ancient one uh, first is like de- like uh, giving humility to Doctor Strange, basically by like expanding his horizons and his vision. That whole scene I was like, oh fuck yes, fuck yes, oh hell yeah. Like watching heavy metal, you know? Like, did you guys ever see that movie? It's like an animated movie from the eighties. Is like um, they made fun of it in that episode of South Park where everybody's like huffing cat piss. It's like that just crazy technicolor absurdism, you know, like beautiful. Yeah. And and just I want to say that Dormammu's look grew on me after a few seconds. I thought it was amazing because also, right, like that's probably not his final appearance. No, yeah. He was just, you know, that was that was very much like a Galactus from Fantastic Four Part Two, except way cooler. Um, I was going to say, at least it was more satisfying than a giant cloud. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. It, it was cool, too, because yeah. like. I feel like the more you look at it, the more you see his face, you know, like I could see that face in flames instead, you know, and like, I, I don't know. It was cool. I think it was a, a solid way to introduce the character without giving us too much of him. Exactly. Because it wasn't his movie. Right. And, and, and so I, I just love the way they built up to that and then kind of gave us a teaser of it. And now we know we'll get the rest. And he's kind of steeped movie. in mystery still. Like, we don't really know yeah. that much about him, which makes him more engaging. A lot of people criticized uh, the villain of this movie, online at least, saying that it's another generic Marvel uh, villain. But I actually really liked him. I thought he was great. I loved Caselius. Um, I thought that 
his the story they gave him was good they just didn't really do the best job in the world of putting it out there but you guys can correct me if i'm wrong i'm almost positive this is what they said that his his whole family died and the reason why he was so obsessed with the dark dimension and dormammu uh this is me reading into the story of course because they don't tell us this because they spent no time developing him but the reason why he's so obsessed with that is because he feels that he can find his family there or find infinity with his family in the dark dimension. That was what I read it. Read it. Yeah, I think you're right. That was how I interpreted it. I think what was important is that this movie set up the next movie's antagonist very well, which is definitely going to be Mordo. Um, and his entire motivation is like really apparent. Like he doesn't like all the sorcerers and it just feels like everything is chaotic there, there's no sense of order well, i think even more than that like i think um i wanted to bring attention to his character as well um because i think similar to how stephen strange had a really really compelling arc as a character i feel like he did as well um we see him in the beginning of the movie and he is like a steadfast believer in uh in the ancient one's teachings and you know they they tell us that he was you know, a man who was seeking vengeance. So obviously he's a man who's like prone to, um, I don't want to say violence, but towards, um, let's just say like action, right? And that he was completely kind of um, soothed out of that desire for vengeance and bloodshed by the Ancient One's teachings and by believing in this, um, what he saw as being this kind of pure endeavor of protecting the world and then realizing that even this person who he had given all his faith to had lied to him, um, you know, I, I, it makes sense that he's now, you know, like, well, fuck it. Like, obviously I know better, you know, and like I can do a better job than she did and we can, you know, have a better uh, system of sorcerers. And, and I, that kind of, that kind of goes along with <clears throat> what I really enjoyed about the movie is kind of this, this, you have Doctor Strange on one side, Mordo on the other side, and the Ancient One in the middle. So Doctor Strange refuses to really kill people. He killed the one guy, and he was like, fuck it, I'm a doctor. I save people. It's what I do. I don't kill people. And that's what made the climax so satisfying, is that he stops tomorrow without killing anyone, because he's a doctor. He uses his brain and saves someone. That was very cool. So you have Mordo, who looks at things as kind of the strict duality of light and dark. And the fact that the Ancient One taps into the dark, he can't cope with that because it's breaking the basic law and order of things because he finds that to be like intrinsically messed up. But the Ancient One kind of has the more Eastern philosophy of like this yin-yang effect where light and dark are merely kind of perceptions and she needs to tap into the dark for the greater good. And all that was executed fucking phenomenally and i think even like his relationship with her was really compelling for me the way that we kind of see him come from like total awe to questioning her to finally understanding her in her final moments you know and and that that line that he has uh, where he's like she was complicated there was a gr- there was a, there was a good tease like uh, the people i saw in the movie with thought that dr strange was going to rebel against her like they people were t- like people were actually thinking that like he was going to question everything so much that he would turn a little bit or something like, and I was like, that's good storytelling. It is. I had the same thoughts. Yep. You know, one thing I really, I, the, this is something I wanted to say earlier is talking about Tilda Swinton, but like the, she, her dialogue, like made me, 
like I had emo- an emotional resonance with the things she was saying. Like at one point, one of her lines is, "We don't defeat our demons; we rise above them." That's a great line. Or isn't it? We learn to live above them. Or we learn to live above them. Yeah. And and the scene where she's dying and she's in her astral form and she's like, "I've seen this moment like a million times," and then just talking about wanting to see the last snowflakes or something. All that was so good. It's just beautiful. Yeah, man. I, I, I don't think you can say enough about the acting in this movie specifically. I think like I'm the first one to like bang Marvel's drum for just how good they are at casting. But like the fact that they got Benedict Cumberpatch, like who is like an Oscar award winning actor, like he brought a real gravitas to this role. And I think like the supporting cast, like, you know, really, um, kept pace with him. I think like, even like characters, like I said, like that were really underserved. I think even like, um, uh, what was it? Christine, Rachel McAdams character. Like, she was great. Like, she did a great job in that movie, even though she was really only in, like, what, three scenes with him? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, and it's like, and I really, like, I felt a lot of, I don't know, I feel like she could have really risen to be a Pepper Potts kind of character, but there just wasn't space for her in this movie. And I think, like, I'm interested to see what impact she might have moving forward, because, like, the little tastes I did get of this character, I thought that they had really good chemistry together. I had I had really opposite feelings on Benedict Cumberbatch's patch, uh, casting because originally I had heard like there were all these rumblings that Joaquin Phoenix was considering the role and I was like, oh man, he would be perfect for this, but he turned it down because he didn't want to do a multi-film franchise. And when I heard Benedict Cumberbatch got cast, I was like, oh, this is the safe choice. You think? Yeah, that's how I felt because even though this is a very good actor, is I I. I, I've never been really wowed by Benedict Cumberbatch in films okay. before. Uh, but I was really won over by his performance. I remember people were saying, like, I went to go see this film with my brother, and he had a similar feeling. And he was, like, iffy on him in the beginning. And I heard people in the back of the audience talking, saying, what an asshole, about, like, Stephen Strange. He is an like, asshole. Everyone... I know. And I was like, the movie's doing its job. <laughs> Benedict Cumberbatch is doing his job. He won people over, and he won people over to the character. Also, uh, I don't know if anyone else had this observation, but um, I went to go see it with uh, my friend Thompson, who's one of the guys on my YouTube channel. And, um, like, I'm of the opinion that Benedict Cumberbatch prepared his American accent by binge-watching House. Because, like, <laughs> like, he sounds exactly like Hugh Laurie. It makes sense because he's a surgeon. That's what I'm saying. Like, it's literally just like, all right, watch House, and instead of, like, getting whatever disease it is that makes him crippled, he becomes Doctor Strange. Did you guys know Tomorrow was also Benedict Cumberbatch? Really? That's what I was told by my brother. i that up. Yeah, he did a little smog. So wait, wait, wait until we have the movie where Dormammu is, like, the main villain, and there's, like, a scene where it's literally Benedict Cumberbatch acting against himself. <laughs> that would be so fucking great. So one of the one of the cool things, um, a little Easter egg that I don't know how many people caught, is that uh, Daniel Drum, who's also known as uh, Brother Voodoo, was actually one of the uh, masters in the movie. Oh, I didn't notice that. Really? Yeah. Yeah. You think he, I was teasing uh, something? Uh he dies, so I'm not sure what, oh. what it would be teasing. But uh, well, he does have a brother in the comics. He has a brother, and uh, so. His well, so Daniel Drum, I believe, is brother Voodoo, and his brother is um, killed, and so his brother's ghost kind of like 
kind of haunts him. Sorry, okay, Jericho Drum is brother Voodoo, and Daniel Drum is his brother who dies. So now the brother has died. We've, we've witnessed it on screen. Now that kind of opens the door for Jericho Drum cool. to become brother Voodoo. That'd be really cool. Who also becomes the Sorcerer Supreme at some point. I, yeah, yeah, he replaces Strange after he steps down because of he has to like... I forget, there's like a conflict where he can't be the Sorcerer Supreme to do something and save the world, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't recall exactly what happened a couple of years ago. I remember reading the book. I thought that was that was an interesting little Easter egg that they gave us. They've been doing that a lot, and I like that. They've been like introducing like really small characters in the background. Like I just I think it was in Civil War. Um a friend of mine just reminded me that like they showed it was like one of the scientists that you see die is a, like a pretty relevant character in a in a certain Avengers arc, she's like the wife of a guy who's like mutated, and she's oh, you know the guy I'm talking about. I can't think of the name. Yeah, 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 yeah. I can't, I can't remember either, but I know what you're yeah. talking about. Yeah, so it's it's cool. It's cool. Like I I liked how they did that with like Howard the Duck too. Like he was just like in the fucking uh what, uh, what was it the collectors like area yeah, or whatever his little collection yeah. thing. Another neat one is that. um so, so an, an actress named Linda Louise Duan uh, appears, but her name isn't used as Tina Minoru. Now, fans of of the uh, Marvel comics may know that last name Minoru because Nico Minoru is uh, one of the gosh, what team is she a part of? Uh, Nico Minoru is a part of the Runaways. There you go. Nico Minoru is one of the Runaways. So her mother appeared in this film. Uh, which is pretty cool. Oh shit! Don't know. Yeah, if that's, and, and her yeah. mother. I'm like most of their parents are really relevant to that plot because like that's the whole thing that makes the Runaways become the Runaways is like their parents are all either supervillains or are involved with like like crime and supervillainy, and they're like, yeah, no, we're gonna be superheroes, and run away <laughs> exactly. and have a pet dinosaur because that book is awesome. And I believe, <laughs> I believe we just learned that there's going to be a Runaways television. They've show. been talking about that for like literally ten years. Yeah, like, I remember so, going to Comic-Con in 2006, and they were like, Runaways TV show's happening, so is Jessica Jones and Luke Cage. And I was like, all right, that'll be the day. <laughs> hey, two out of three. So, two out of three. We still still haven't gotten Cloak and Dagger, though. They promised that, too. I, that I would love to see. I was going to bring up the mid-credit scene. That's where I was Hell going. yeah. Yeah. I, it's very rare I get excited for like a post-credit, mid-credit scene, but when I – what it – insinuated i was like oh shit. i know i know and i don't i don't I, like i'm really not a fan of the thor movies but i don't know man oh wait no was that the second one the first one was the yeah no, no you're right the that first was the one was the thor oh, okay okay cool yeah. yeah so yeah man i the idea of like ragnarok being like a buddy cop movie with like thor doctor strange is just like please can that just be the movie <laughs> Uh, I, I was just going to say, I didn't really understand it, quite frankly. This is the first time I've seen an after credit scene that didn't make sense. Well, yeah, so follow me here. In Thor 2, uh, The Dark World, at the end, Odin dies and Loki takes the throne. Or maybe he so, doesn't die. He just gets locked away or something. Right. Yeah, he's, he's, he's away. And Loki takes on the, 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 the visage of Odin. And so no one knows that except us, the audience. But in this in this mid credit scene, Thor says, we need to find my father. And, and, and Dr. Strange says, is that why you have Loki here in New York? So, so is Loki no longer portraying Odin in uh, Asgard? Yeah, my thought is that and, Thor figured it out and, you know, I think, grabs him by yeah, the cape. I think there's a little... 
I think there's a little bit of a time skip just to be like move the plot along. Because I feel like Thor three will probably start with like Thor knowing Loki was an imposter Odin and like that's already in motion. Yeah, I'm assuming that that's like a pickup around like somewhere like a third of the way into Thor Ragnarok. Like we'll get the setup of why this is happening and then he comes to New York and meets with Strange. Gotcha. That was my yeah, that, that was my sense. thought anyway. Yeah, that that sounds right to me. I guess just in the moment my knowledge of Thor 2 was conflicting with what they were telling me and I was just kind of... Yeah, lost. I do think there was the assumption that, that you were going to just, like, assume that there's a gap of time there somewhere. Because when you when you see the conclusion of that movie, your thought is the next movie, he's gonna, there's going to be that, aha, I discovered your, your insidious sot. But uh, I think the reality is they're moving that along. Yeah, which, which is fine, you know. Um, I mean, I'm very excited I'm ex- about that personally because, like, yeah. I I was not interested in in Ragnarok. Like, I didn't. Thor one was f- okay. Thor two is Ragnarok. Bad. The book is great. I think Thor two might actually be the worst Marvel movie that they've put out. Uh, yeah, Thor Ragnarok as a comic is really good. Um, but they just haven't delivered on a Thor movie for me. And I, you know, like I'll 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 go see it. I'll hold out hope. But you know. Two mediocre movies in a row, or one that I think is actively not good. I, I think I think there's a new director and writer. There, there is, yeah. So, so let's let's talk about the final uh, after credits scene, uh, which was uh, Baron Mordo visiting the character. I that guy was great. Uh, the the um, the character who we went to visit. Yeah, I liked I liked his little his little role. His, his yeah. he was like an inciting incident. He's a good day sex machina. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I love the way they inserted that. At first I was like, oh, this is kind of like, you know, how how convenient, but it actually kind of worked out, I thought. I was actually like it was funny because like I'm with you, Phil. Like I really like that character and I didn't realize how much I liked him until I was really, really sad in that post credit scene where I was like, fuck, dude, like it's like you just made him a cripple again. Like he can't walk or move his hands. Like that's horrible. You know what? You know what? Uh, you know what made me like roll my eyes in Doctor Strange a little bit is early in the movie when he's in um, Kathmandu, Stephen Strange's. He's walking around. He's like, "Do you know where this is? Do you know where this is?" Kind of like Liam Neeson and Taken looking for his daughter. But uh, you just see uh, Mordo in the back with a hood over his head, and I'm just thinking like, no one thinks that's ominous. <laughs> like all these people walking around. This dude's like wearing robes and a and a hood. So back back to that after credit scene. The the character's name is Jonathan Pangborn, uh, and we see him kind of alive and well doing his thing. And then Mordo pays him a visit. Now he's wearing a a, a black hoodie, and he's obviously turned to the dark side. And um, Pangborn can tell that something is off, so he grabs what he grab a. It was like a it was some, a crowbar, I think. Yeah, he grabs a yeah. crowbar. Yeah, grabs a crowbar. Obviously, he's no match for Mordo, and Mordo sucks the magic out of Pangborn's body, paralyzing him once again. Uh, which I thought was awesome, and just kind of, first of all, it was very, very uh, Shang Tsung of him to do that. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but, but I just thought it was really cool that he's. Not only is he a sorcerer, but he's trying to take the powers of other sorcerers. So that kind of, that kind of gives him a different angle other than just being, all right, I'm going to shoot magic bolts at you. Um, and so I'm really interested in where they're going to take his character with the next film. I agree. We really should, like, we talk about the acting and the casting, but Chawaito Elijah for, who's 
an incredible actor. Oh yeah. Twelve Years a Slave. I will I will be fully transparent and say that the only reason I did not pay him a heap of praise is because I wasn't sure how to say his name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I looked it up and I was I literally gonna I say it. like shout outs to him, but we just talked about how good he was, so I was just like, that's probably fine. I can't Chawidal <laughs> Elijah for. Yeah. Chawidal Elijah for. He did an amazing job. Um, yeah, I mean I think like of the four the four main cat or the five main cast, I guess if you want to include the villain, like they did a phenomenal job. Like you know, I, I really don't think that there was a weak named character among the bunch, you know? Oh, wait, real quick. I want to give a shout out to my favorite non-character in the film, which is the fucking Cape of Levitation. Oh, man. Because yeah. that shit was so funny. And that's the kind of thing that I think can really, really easily, like, not land. And I think they used it just enough where it was funny and... And just enough where you're just like, personally, like that moment where he gets like, he's filled with purpose and he goes to go down the stairs and he throws his arm out and the cape just wraps around him. I like literally audibly was like, oh man, like just such a fan service moment, you know, like God, that was so perfect. Just cool, man. Just, just cool. I wasn't crazy about the the little bit of slapstick when he's trying to go for the axe and the and the and the, and the cloak's like nope nope oh yeah nope. it was it was too over top <laughs> for was, me. It was a little long, yeah. Yeah, it was too long. If they did it like once or twice, okay, but it was like four or five times. I interpreted that as a tongue-in-cheek reference to the current Doctor Strange comic books because in them he actually uses axes and and different weapons oh. on the cover of the first comic book and the graphic novel is him with an axe. Okay. That's cool. That's a cool nod. Um, I personally, like, I I really liked the scene where it's like, he's like, you think, you know, he's about to die, right? And then the thing just wraps around that guy's face and it's just smashing <laughs> him into the ground. Like, that very much yeah. reminded me of, like, the puny god scene in Avengers where it was just like, it just came so out of nowhere in this very tense moment and breaks the tension. Like, I couldn't help but crack up. And then, like, they do the cutback later, and he's still just doing it, like. <laughs> <laughs> any any last thoughts before we go? Yeah. Um, from a, from a, like, okay, every superhero movie has fight scenes, but this movie's fight scenes were really, I think, significantly unique, because you had one where they're just fighting on reality, just warping around, and then you have another fight scene in the operating room of their astral forms. Like, both and then of course the climax with Dormoro, like every scene that had some kind of conflict, like physical or, or like conflict with the adversary, were really unique and like visually significant. And they they move the plot along too, because like to your point, they serve the purpose of like teaching you things about how magic works. Cause it's like not only was each fight scene unique, it was just like, oh, like in the first one, you see they can create the mirror dimension and warp reality and stuff, but not affect the real world. And in the other fight scene, you see, you know, just like, this is how they conjure a shield. This is how you conjure this ability. And it's like each fight scene kind of served to show a little bit more of, or like the astral forms, you know, like showing how we knew that Dr. Strange should go into an astral form. We knew that he could interact with people in that form, but we didn't necessarily see that there was combat or that it was able that you could kill a person in the astral form which was something i also really liked that they didn't pull punches and we actually saw dr strange kill a man is something that i was not expecting at all and the weight it had on yeah him. yeah and I, like you said that line of like i'm a doctor you know it's like that was powerful 
and what's great is like the entire time Mordo's like you're you got no spine you're a coward and like you've eventually gonna have to make hard decisions like this like they are constantly playing on this character's flaws or like perceived flaws at one point the ancient one is talking about his ego and how his fear of failure constantly holds him back and all of this makes the the climax so satisfying absolutely i think that's like (sighs) that's the moral of, of dr strange is that it is satisfying because every single thing that happens is logical and earned so like it has weight Absolutely. you care you know like and it's not it's not in the same way that i think some other movies do end up getting a pass because we as comic readers like have a certain amount of emotional baggage that we bring to these characters it's like this movie stands firm and tall on its own and like i think i think that's i think you're right i think that's it it's the weight yeah yeah i think that's a that's a great place to wrap up this spoiler conversation about doctor yeah, go, go see you know, go see the movie again fuck it like i'm going to go see it two more times yeah. like <laughs> Definitely. And, and and just to close out, I hope that both Marvel and DC learn lessons from this. Alright, so uh, we're going to wrap up here. Yeah, let's get the other two guys uh, back in and we can finish up the show. Alright, so that ends our spoiler-filled conversation. We've got the gang back together and uh, we're going to close out the show. So... As usual, we're going to do the plugs, and Pete, why don't you start us off? Yes, uh, first starters, I'd like to say thank you for joining us here on episode three of the Comics Pals. Again, if you guys liked it, please like it, share it with a friend, subscribe to the channel, all that fun stuff. If you want to see more of me, uh, you can visit my other YouTube channel, Slack and Slash, where me and a few of my other friends uh, make Let's Plays. We have a podcast every Monday. We do some scripted content about video games, uh, so please come check that shit out. I really appreciate it. Oh, and if you want to just like get more of me alone, uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at loud underscore Pete. And uh, I'm usually there talking about pop culture and questioning my own existence. I would also like to say if you're if you are a fan of us on Facebook, uh, it would really help us out if you would share the uh, episodes um, and not necessarily the uh, the Instagram posts. Mom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm Wait, take... your mom listens to this? Yes, she Hi, does. Hi, Mrs. Ward. Aww. At least I think I know she at least she at least sees the Instagram post. I'm gonna take a second to plug uh, my comics company, Panels Publishing. Uh, we're a small comics uh, publishing house that really focuses on getting novice creators into the uh, comics industry. Uh, so follow us on Facebook. We're Panels Comics. On Twitter, we're Panels Comics with an X, and we are also on Comicsology as Panels Publishing, and you can find all of our work at panelspublishing.com. Hey there, guys. Uh, you guys can check out my other podcast, Parlapod, as well as Splurge. It's just a uh, podcast to that. Uh, we just launched our Patreon, so you guys could, um, if you guys want to help us out, support us, um, we really appreciate it, and definitely share this episode i'm going to be editing the spoiler zone so hopefully they did a good job and i'm not um ruined for the movie you uh, will be and oh will i you will be you will be you will oh be. i guess that was an inside joke i don't oh, I don't oh you will it. be no don't 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 know you don't know what's going oh you on. will be oh you, you will, will be. be you will be <laughs> it's a star wars <laughs> reference <laughs> Oh, and you can also check out my band Voodoo. You can check us out at voodoo.band. It's our Instagram uh, with links to our Facebook, our SoundCloud, and YouTube channel. Make sure and check out that Voodoo that they do. I'm plugging musical theater. That's it. 
<laughs> please go see a live show. And last but not least, uh, please do uh, like, comment, and subscribe to our YouTube channel and uh, definitely share this. And if you have any questions that you want to leave us, we can respond to them. You can send those questions to any of our Twitter pages. Not mine because I don't have one yet, but I will really soon. And um, you can leave them on the YouTube page. You can leave them on our Facebook page. Or you can email us at thecomicspals.com, right, Marco? It's, at, it's thecomicspals yes. at gmail.com. Thank you. That's thank the thecomicspals at gmail.com. Please send us your questions. We will read them on the air. All right. So with that, we are the Comics Pals signing off. Take care. See you next week. See ya. I'm definitely a top. <laughs> <laughs>